0: Bloomberg audio studios podcasts radio news you're listening to the bloomberg balance of power podcast catch us live weekdays at noon eastern on apple carplay and android auto with the bloomberg business app listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on
1: youtube welcome to the friday edition of balance of power I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, D.C. with a lot to cover this hour, and we begin with the death of Alexei Navalny, 47 years old. The story that we're hearing uh, from the federal prison service is like something out of a bad movie. Out with a statement, said Navalny felt unwell after a walk on Friday. He lost consciousness, an ambulance arrived. They tried to rehabilitate him, it says, but he died. Now, remembering, back in December, uh, friends and family lost track of him, Uh, He later emerged in a remote Arctic prison camp. As I said, it's like something out of a bad movie. We are waiting to hear now from President Biden. This is a late add to the schedule. He was set to begin speaking three minutes ago, high noon from the White House, knowing that President Biden has a trip to Ohio today. He's on his way to East Palestine, uh, where we also expect remarks later on. But when he speaks to this issue of Navalny, we'll bring it to you live here on Bloomberg Radio on the satellite and on YouTube. And with us here in studio to get things started is uh, Nick Waddams who, of course, runs our national security team here at Bloomberg. It's good to see you, Nick. I know you've been very busy on this, and it's uh, obviously – a deeply troubling story. I just wonder the political ramifications here in the U.S. Joe Biden is about to seize on this. What do you think we hear from him? Well, uh,
2: it'll be very interesting because, you know, it was President Biden who had said some months ago that if uh, Alexei Navalny died in Russian custody, the consequences for Vladimir Putin would be, quote unquote, devastating. So, uh, you know, who knows what that will mean if it's sanctions, uh, uh, sanctions have not devastated Russia so far. So, but he's going to have to do something. The big question for for me is what does this do for Ukraine aid? I mean, this yes, military right. aid has been tied up $60 billion in Congress, obviously the condemnations from all sides are coming fast and furious right now. So does this pry loose or add to pressure to House Republicans to unlock that aid?
1: Is it too early to answer that? We saw a statement from a Speaker of the House who has uh, said that this Ukraine and Israel Taiwan funding bill is DOA. We've been through this before. A Very stern statement calling Putin a dictator uh, in his written statement, at least does, does this move the needle in the house? Uh,
2: you know, it, it, the question is whether it, uh, it will really add, add to the pressure. I mean, the, 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 issue for Johnson is that he has staked so much of his reputation now on making sure this bill does not go through. Right. So to turn around, I mean, we are seeing some other stuff that's going to be just as troubling, Russian forces uh, making advances on some Ukrainian towns, one in particular where essentially it's all come down to munitions. The, <laughs> the Russian uh, dominance on artillery shells has meant that it really has the advantage and is able to press and take back some territory from, uh, from Ukraine that it had previously seized and then lost. So you know, you are starting to see a real impact on the ground as well uh, as a result of the US not being able to send that funding. So <laughs> pressure is mounting on Speaker Johnson.
1: Give us your view on Vladimir Putin right now. You just mentioned a couple of important points, and I'll add to them. We had this news of a hypersonic missile being used in Ukraine for the first time this week. We spent a lot of time talking about space nukes, even though that's not really uh, what they are. We had his uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek endorsement of Joe Biden. Is he feeling emboldened by the lack of action here in the U.S.? Well, I mean, certainly this plays
2: right to his strengths. So anytime there's division in the U.S., that's uh, something he seeks to exploit. Uh-huh. So the, the, you know, quote-unquote endorsement of Joe Biden just <laughs> is just a perfect example of a way in which he's trying to sort of stir the pot yeah. in the U.S. I mean, there, there are a couple things happening here that are really interesting. The satellite thing, for example, the nukes, I mean, that was a leak from a member of Congress that was that's right. designed to put pressure on various people for all sorts of other reasons. So there is an element of a of a snowball where you you have Putin doing certain things, but then the f- the fervor and Washington gets to be particularly uh, yeah. uh, spiky. So then more comes in and it's just like
1: Russia, Russia, Russia all the time. <laughs> I mean, not to quote Donald Trump. I've heard but- that before, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the way he operates, though, to your point. He knows when to seize Uh, The moment, it's not a coincidence that Tucker Carlson showed up for a big interview uh, to run on the U.S. around that same time. I
2: I think what you're seeing, too, is he wants to be in the center of the action. I mean, it's almost like there's no such thing as bad publicity for, for Vladimir Putin. The Navalny thing is really interesting um i mean you can't say that this was not what russia actually intended he had been put in successively worse and worse and worse prison conditions uh i mean based on the dispatches we had heard from him and his lawyers i mean he was essentially uh you know in in extremely poor health in an awful situation um And obviously, President Biden had thought this might be coming, saying, you know, the consequences would be devastating. So, again, all eyes on the
1: president right now. Uh, Well, we'll be, of course, uh, listening closely when he speaks and we'll bring, as I mentioned, President Biden's remarks to you here on uh, Bloomberg Radio and on YouTube. Nick Wadhams, great to see you. Thank you so much, as always, for jumping on breaking news and helping us understand what's happening in many cases on the other side of the world. I want to add the voice of Terry Haynes, who is out with some interesting thoughts on this. Earlier today, of course, the founder of Pangea Policy, We've got a lot to talk about uh, today with Terry. It's good to see you, sir. Uh, this, based on what I'm reading from your note to clients earlier today, does not do much for the debate surrounding Ukraine funding here in Washington. What's your take?
3: Oh, I think it was uh, that those notes were to you, by the way. <laughs> for what it's huh, worth, I have not read in the I'm your number one That's client. Right, I, I love this. Thank I haven't you. I have to you you you're my client. Uh, I haven't written to clients today <laughs> about this, I mean, and and a good thing because, as you pointed out, uh, the the uh, the world's very fast moving right now. Uh, so anything I would say is probably out of date an hour later. Um, I don't think Navalny <laughs> has much to, much of anything to do with the debate, sadly. And you know, as, as Nick pointed out, uh, you know, uh, you could almost assume a Navani demise. Uh, I'm very sorry to yeah, say, right. uh, but. You know, the, and and the United States gets into trouble when it starts uh, uh, moving foreign policy chips around uh, based on the the death or murder of one person in particular, whether it's Navalny or mm-hmm. uh, Jamal Khashoggi, for another example. Uh, you know, where all of a sudden. Uh, Saudi Arabia was a pariah and then it was then we were fist bumping and now uh, then we were working hmm. on Middle East peace and now I'm not entirely sure what we're doing but uh, yeah. you know but it goes back and forth and sideways I don't think it has much of an effect I think the Russian space nuke thing I'll I'll call it uh, it may yes. well but uh, there are too many variables right now so we don't, really don't know
1: well we don't although there is I guess a new bill a plan D as they're calling it, Uh, in the House right now that does take a slightly different approach to funding, uh, through the eyes at least of of House Republicans, more palatable. Terry, does it give you the sense when you see something emerge like this that there in fact will be a debate and an eventual compromise?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think so. The uh – let me just put it this way, uh, you know, Washington, you know, particularly where you're sitting right now and the the uh, restaurants in the immediate area are full of people all talking about process, why process is so difficult, why process is not going to make this happen, while process is, you know, is, is the friend of those who want to stop Ukraine aid. Uh, my response is simply, you've got a situation where three quarters of the House wants Ukraine aid in addition to the Senate, in addition to the president. So there's that, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, what you see in the uh, in, in the bipartisan problem solvers bill that's out today is really what the House should have been doing anyway uh, uh, last week, which is saying, okay, well, we don't, you know, we're not in, completely in favor of your bill, but you know, let's go to conference and you know get more of what we want. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of political and, and uh, policy cowardice going on on both sides of the island in both houses hmm. where people just don't want to stand up and say, OK, we're going to work this process through and we're going to get most of what we want. Uh, they'd rather mm-hmm. you know, not get anything or, or be pure than, uh, than get most of what they want. What Brian Fitzpatrick and the others are saying is, no, we're going to move forward here and we're going to try to put our shoulders to the wheel and try to make this happen. I think there's an awful lot of pressure, even though the, you've got, uh, you know, Republicans against Ukraine aid on the right, you've got, uh, left, uh, Democrats, uh, against certain parts of the Israeli aid package. Um, I think there's going to be an awful lot of pressure from the rank and file and the centrists here to make something happen, which is fundamentally why I think something does.
1: Fascinating. Uh, A couple of things I want to ask you about this, including how the president seizes on the moment. He's going to try to leverage this news, I assume, to move Ukraine funding. Uh, Are we in for another dangerous world speech? What's coming from the White House today?
3: Oh, I imagine so. Yeah, we're in for a dangerous world speech. And we're in, in, uh, and I'm sorry to say for another, I call on the Congress to do their jobs uh, speech. Okay. What's left out of that, of course, is uh, is is Biden's willingness to actually jump out there and do whatever he can to make that happen. Uh, he's got very little ability to do that, by and large, because he doesn't really have any political capital to use. You know, a, a president that has shown himself—I say this not in a partisan sense, just in a keen political observer sense— uh, a president has shown himself in hock to this, uh, this progressive wing for the last three years. Uh, you know, one of the things that tells you is he doesn't have the ability to move his Democrats very much. Uh, and in fact, one thing I always point out is uh, successes in Congress have existed, uh, in particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, have existed in particular because Biden's been told to stay away from it by uh, by Democratic leader Schumer. That happened with the, the the ira it happened with infrastructure uh you notice the the lack of white house in direct involvement in what the senate did on uh on the ukraine bill as part of that uh they white house was informed of schumer's course of action wasn't asked for it so um what you have here is a situation where you know biden's going to uh you know urge the congress to do something and then go back in and do whatever else is next on his schedule but you know if they want this, they need to get to pull out all the stops to make it happen. If they don't, the conclusion that Congress draws, the people that have the votes, is that Biden doesn't really care about it very much. So he's going to have to start to care if he's going to if he's going to actually make something happen.
1: I want to talk to you about government funding, specifically defense spending, Terry. But first, what what should be done about this Navalny story? Uh. I know you're not a military analyst or, or or specializing in national security necessarily, but this president uh, did promise, I believe, devastating consequences if this happened for Vladimir Putin. Or could we in, be in for a, another announcement today?
3: Um, I don't see what. Uh, thanks for the frame there, but I, I don't see what they can do that will change the, the narrative in particular. Yeah, uh, you know the. You know, the best thing he could do is uh, is put a shoulder to the wheel and get Ukraine aid done. Uh, the best thing he could do is uh, figure out some aggressive course on, uh, you know, what, again, we'll call the Russian space nuke issue, although as you accurately point yeah, out, yeah, it's not really right. that. Uh, but, you know, do some do something about that, because that's going to be another issue where if he doesn't do something and show that he's doing something, uh, you know, that the, the passivity on that issue might well trap him.
1: So think about everything that we've talked about so far, Terry Haynes. You connect the dots on all of this stuff. And, and I mm-hmm. wonder what it means for the argument over funding the government, specifically the Pentagon. This is going to make a CR or a minibus even less palatable to hawks in the House, won't it? What's going to happen when lawmakers come back? Do you think we're shutting down in March?
3: Well, firstly, I give great credit to uh, to Bloomberg hosts, uh, particularly you, uh, for not uh, not laughing when you were interviewing uh, a member of the House Republican leadership yesterday. Uh, that was good of you. Huh. You're a professional. Um, the wow. but it is it is so you're laughing is uh, what you're saying. Well, it's, you know, it's, it is la- it's laughable, I'm sorry to say. Um, you know, Emmer was doing the best he could, but, at this, but, but you know, when you're going away and you've got three days to come back uh, and, and finalize some sort of a deal for all the, uh, all the funding priorities and what you've seen in the last six months is every time they go away, exactly nothing happens. What that adds up to this time is another nothing's going to happen. So Johnson's going to be caught again with a, a situation where you know Demer can say what he likes, but a, but a a situation where there's going to be another extension of funding. Uh, firstly, secondly, I would say underneath that there's probably going to be yeah. a revision of uh, and, and a relook at what the defense funding is is going to be because you'll recall um, Congress already in the last fiscal year. Uh, Basically told Biden no. That however much money you want for defense isn't enough, and they added on another three percent. Right, right. um, you're likely to see that between uh, Ukraine, Navalny, uh, the Russian space nuke issue. You know you're likely to yes. see all that go on uh, to to really pump it up even more.
1: Well, March is going to be interesting. I just want you to know, Terry, we officially have the countdown clock up while you were speaking. The countdown to the shutdown is officially underway. I've been looking forward to seeing you, Terry. Thanks for joining. He's the founder of Pangea Policy with the Insider's View today in Washington, an important one for us.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say,
1: Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Jeannie, this is a late addition to the schedule here. Did Joe Biden say enough? having promised devastating consequences if this were to happen.
4: You know, I think we do need to know, obviously, we just got the news that he passed away earlier today, and they're still waiting to confirm it, as the president said, if it's to be believed. Um, He has no reason not to believe it, but they do need confirmation. And then I think they need to be very clear on how they are going to respond, considering he did promise to respond forcefully. Um, I, I was a little bit surprised that he did not take the opportunity to call out by name those people in the House who are holding up this funding and to make clear that there is a way in which he is going to be active in pushing for this and you know to make those stakes very clear. That said, I think you know the, the idea that he took questions after his last go around with the press, I was also surprised and he seemed to handle those very well and they were on a variety of topics.
1: He had a couple of of stumbles there when he was trying to check himself, Rick. But how how did he perform and did he say enough about how to handle Vladimir Putin?
5: Yeah, he's fine. I mean, for an 82 year old president, he he knocked it out of the park. You know what I mean? Um, The bottom line is he should have announced some kind of sanctions against the Russian leadership for their complicity in the death of Alexei. Navalny. It's outrageous after all that's been said and done that we're still, quote, taking it under consideration. We know what the different things are that we can do with Russia. We've been talking about it for years and years and years, literally almost since Vladimir Putin got into office. We've been planning sanctions. Uh it doesn't take yeah. 10 seconds to put a bunch on a list and say this is what we're going to do as of today because of the murder of Alexei Navalny. And so Uh, Another sort of weak response that's not actually going to get any momentum in Congress because the people who care about this uh, are already outraged and probably more outraged than than President Biden just discussed. I, I think it's great that he made the statement, but it was another weak attempt at trying to sable rattle rather than drive a saber into the Russian leadership. Uh, I, I would also say, uh, just one point of outrage, you know, we've all been talking about Tucker Carlson's trip to Moscow, his, his, mm-hmm. his very placid interview with, um, with, with, with Putin. But like today, he was in Dubai at a conference yeah. and said, in relationship to the death of Alexei Navalny, that leadership requires killing people. Well, if this is not he the did. most outrageous thing for American to say in a public forum, uh, I, I can't imagine why. And anybody who would give a forum to this person who has these kinds of views is, is, should be condemned at first blush. So uh, sorry to rattle on on this, but it's a pretty emotional day for those of us who care about freedom.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that would be Elon Musk, of course, harboring and hosting that program on X. Uh, and I did see that remark, Rick. It was incredible. Particularly, Genie, when you consider the way that Tucker Carlson appears to have been used by Vladimir Putin to spread a message to the West
4: absolutely right um you know unconscionable that he would say that um i i do have to say i i do support the president coming out forcefully on sanctions or other actions but i also think the united states government the president has got to wait until they are confirmed and they have confirmed that he is in fact dead and as you hear the president saying if then that means they shouldn't announce what they're going to do. But on Tucker Carlson, absolutely. We heard the EU come back even prior to those statements, given his interview with Vladimir Putin, and say that they may institute a travel ban. Um, You know, obviously he has free speech rights to say what he wants, but private organizations and organizations sponsoring this type of talk, they should take action. Um, you know, boycotts and other things by the, you know, by people are absolutely acceptable. Um, you know, a, another thing I think that we need to be very clear on is the president. I believe should have taken more forcefully and said everybody wishing, you know, good wishes for uh, for Navalny's widow and his family and and you know, condemning his death. They have got to follow that, specifically the members of the House, with action on supporting Ukraine, which is why he went back in 2020 to change his government. And, and he really was very forceful on the, the incursion into Ukraine. And so that type of talk should be followed by action. Otherwise, it's hypocritical.
1: President speaking to the need to fund Ukraine, Rick, saying the clock is ticking. We expected that he would use this uh, as an opportunity uh, to kind of underscore the urgency of the matter. But I find it interesting here. We've got a new bill in the House. Uh, This is the Plan D bill, as some are calling it. $48 Forty-eight billion in new aid for Ukraine, billions more for Israel, and indo It comes out though to sixty-six billion dollars in defense-only support, as opposed to more than a hundred billion passed in the Senate. Is this maybe something that could get traction in the House, or are we turning away from this?
5: No, I mean, I don't think it's going to get any more traction than, than anything else has. Uh, the reality is you've got 300 votes for the Senate bill, uh, at least in the House of Representatives. And it's all about leadership and whether or not the speaker is going to go forward, you know, with giving Congress a chance to vote on this or whether or not the Democrats are going to be able to post their own bill. Uh, the, the reality is yeah. anything else is just a distraction. You know, from this and the idea that at this late stage that now someone is going to stick a border proposal on top of a defense only bill is just, you know, sort of a flash in the pan. Uh, The the stay in Mexico uh, treaty requires Mexico to say yes to that. And I doubt if the congressman has made any phone calls to Mexico City to line up their support. So I mean, again, just one more example of incompetent leadership in the House.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
6: Joe Matthew and Kaylee Lines live in Washington. But a lot of the attention has instead been across the Atlantic today, Joe, after we woke up to news this morning reports of the death of Russian dissident, most vocal opponent to Vladimir Putin in Russia, Alexei Navalny. And it's news that just happened to coincide with the Munich Security Conference, in which a number of Western leaders are gathered to discuss threats from Russia and the issue of its war in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, we caught up uh, with uh, Senator Ben Cardin, and we're going to speak. Uh, soon, with an important voice, Jeremy Bash mm-hmm. at the conference. The timing here is peculiar uh, and important, frankly, yes. Kaylee, because lawmakers, including Hakeem Jeffries, Republicans mm-hmm. like Michael McCall, are hearing from European leaders about the lack of funding for Ukraine.
6: Including as well, Senator Ben Cardin, the right. Democrat, Democrat from Mer- Maryland, who chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate. He joined Bloomberg earlier today. Take a listen to what he said.
5: Well, this is a tragic event. Uh, Mr. Putin is fully responsible for Mr. Navalty's uh, apparent death. It is absolutely tragic. Uh, the Vice President spoke here at the Munich Security Conference, Vice President Harris, and repeated that there will be consequences. Uh, Mr. Putin's actions are just
3: against all humanity.
1: Ben Carden with us earlier today on Bloomberg. As we bring you back to the Munich Security Conference right now, as I mentioned, Jeremy Bash is with us now at Beacon Global Strategies, has spent a career in national security uh, with two very important roles, chief of staff for the director of the CIA and chief of staff for the secretary of defense. They were both Leon Panetta, who we're going to be speaking with later on today in the late edition of Balance of Power. Uh, it's great to have you with us, sir. I'm curious to hear what you're hearing in Munich on this news of Alexei Navalny's death.
7: Well, great to be with you. It's a somber day here because at this gathering of Western allies where America's principal partners for global security gather annually here at the historic Beyerishov Hotel, uh, normally it's a moment where the allies can stand shoulder to shoulder and feel resolute against the threats uh, coming from Russia, coming from China, coming from other autocrats. But today, of course, the conference was rocked by the news that Alexei Navalny was murdered. Murdered by Putin, murdered by the Kremlin. Uh, Of course, Navalny was the most prominent outspoken critic of Putin and Putinism. And it really, I think, uh, put the spotlight right back on the U.S. Congress, which at this hour is considering whether to fund defensive systems for Ukraine. And the world is watching. The world is watching whether or not the United States will act in defense of Ukraine. You know who else is watching? China's watching. They want to see and understand whether or not uh, Washington can stand by its allies and partners as they think about their next moves in the Indo-Pacific. So this is a very consequential moment. I think the Vice President, Vice President Harris and President Biden today delivered a very strong and effective uh, rebuke to the Kremlin and warned, uh, warned our adversaries that there will be consequences.
6: And as you say, Jeremy, I'm sure our adversaries are paying close attention to the way the U.S. moves forward here, but our allies surely are as well, especially in light of remarks from former President Donald Trump within the last week suggesting that if he were president again, they may not he may not come to the defense of NATO allies who he doesn't think are paying enough into the alliance. How much concern or fear do you sense among European partners that are gathered there about what may happen under a future Trump administration?
7: There is a tremendous amount of concern here among our allies, those allies who have fought, those allies who have died with us on the battlefield, that if Trump is elected, he will pull the rug out from under NATO, he will give a green light to Putin, and autocrats from around the world will think that they have a green light to run over borders, invade our allies, and that American power will be significantly weakened. The statements from Donald Trump last week evidenced themes that were frankly weak that were un-American, that have shocked our allies and partners. And I think uh, Vice President Harris here today and President Biden back in Washington made clear that the United States, as long as they're uh, in, in control, that they will stand by our allies and partners. And that's incredibly important for international security. It's incredibly important for the American people. We benefit from having America at the center of this very important alliance structure. And if Trump has its way, that alliance structure could very well crumble.
1: I want to ask you about this, uh, further about this debate over Ukraine funding, Jeremy. It's not going well here in Washington. Some don't think it will ever happen. The bill that passed the Senate, DOA and the House. And there's just no path right now as we consider so many other matters from Pfizer renewal to actually funding our government. Are European leaders starting to think this money may never arrive? Or do they think that Washington just takes a long time to get around to it?
7: oh i think they're very concerned that this money may not arrive and they 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 come to that conclusion reluctantly because they see the inaction by house republicans principally large bipartisan majorities in both the senate and the house support funding defensive systems for ukraine and by the way most of that money is invested in the united states in our own weapons production so that we can backfill the older systems that we've given to ukraine large bipartisan majorities support this republicans Uh, Two dozen Republicans in the Senate support this. This is really up to Speaker Johnson to bring this vote to the floor of the House. If he does that, I am confident it will pass and it will assuage concerns from our allies here gathered in Germany. If we don't do that, then then the world will look at us and say, why cannot Washington act in the face of this obvious aggression from Putin and the Kremlin?
6: Well, of course, there's many branches to the government, to the Washington machine. And in the absence of action from the legislative branch, and this was a question posed to President Biden when he spoke in the last hour, is there anything realistically that the executive branch or the DOD specifically could do? I know you understand the DOD quite well. Is there really no options here for the Pentagon if Congress doesn't give them the say so?
7: Well, the Defense Department will use every ability that it has, every uh, authority it has, every weapons platform it can provide to help Ukraine as much as it can. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, the Defense Department cannot spend money unless Congress approves it. And so this is really up to the Congress to authorize and appropriate the money so that the Defense Department can turn around and support Ukraine. It's a very small percentage of our defense budget, and it really redounds to the benefit of the American people, uh, to our defense industry. But again, for, I guess, political reasons, maybe listening to the signal sent by Donald Trump about how he would want uh, to destroy NATO and cave to Putin. I don't exactly know why, but for some reason, uh, Republicans in Congress don't want to bring this bill up for a vote. I think if they did, it would pass with bipartisan majorities.
1: Jeremy Bash, you spent time as part of the CIA's senior management team overseeing the team. Uh, that killed Osama bin Laden. We're in a dangerous world right now as we talk about a number of fronts here. And I'm curious your thoughts on the strikes that we've seen by the U.S. in the Middle East going after Iranian-backed proxy groups uh, that have been causing quite a bit of trouble in the Red Sea, in Iraq, and Syria. Are we doing enough to make a difference? What else should be done? Well, we
7: are definitively in a proxy war with Iran I mean these attacks that have unfolded against our allies against our bases against our troops against American citizens don't forget six American citizens are still being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza Mm -hmm. at this hour so this is a fight not just against Israel it's a fight frankly against the United States and all of Western democracies and Iran has unleashed this wave of terrorism because fundamentally it did not want to see regional integration it did not want to see arab israeli peace which the united states was brokering between israel and the kingdom of saudi arabia this was in play before october 7th and as a result of that iran and its proxies and surrogates and terrorist organizations have unleashed horrific violence against the united states our allies our bases and our troops it's fired on ships it's fired on international ships and so i think the united states and president biden were absolutely correct in conducting airstrikes against Iranian targets inside Iraq and Syria, against those surrogates and proxies. We're going to have to continue to do that to keep deterrence high during this very, very dangerous time.
6: Well, and of course, Jeremy, there continues to be a lot of conversations about what happens the day after this conflict is ultimately resolved, if indeed that day comes. Is there a feeling in Munich today that a two-state solution in the future really is possible?
7: Look, Hamas could surrender today. They could give up the hostages, and they could essentially say, you know, we're not going to fight this war. Fundamentally, if you care about a two-state solution, if you care about Palestinian statehood alongside Israel, you want to see Hamas degraded, if not outright destroyed, because Hamas opposes a Palestinian state, uh, any compromise with Israel. Um, So, you know, I wouldn't call, there. I don't want to say there's any optimism here. I would call there's a resolute feeling here among allies and partners, that it's important to uh, destroy terrorist organizations. If we can bring the war to an end by having hostages released and a ceasefire, obviously that's optimal. It's optimal for Israel. Uh, But I don't see any scenario in which Hamas can be left standing. You wouldn't want a serial killer living next door to you, even if you uh, degrade their capability. If a serial killer was living next door to you, you would not sleep very well at night.
6: All right, Jeremy Bash, former chief of staff at the DOD and CIA, thank you very much for your time joining us live uh, in what is now evening at the Munich Security Conference, where, of course, there are many geopolitical matters that are on the agenda, Joe, and and probably a conversation they didn't expect to be having today about what impact the death of Alexei Navalny will have, whether it actually provides something of a galvanizing force to Western allies to do more to help Ukraine. Really
1: fascinating peak uh, inside the conference. It's going to be lasting the weekend. It's an annual event. To your point, Kaylee, the timing is quite remarkable this time around. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.